0: In your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 12. We'll take a break from our study of Galatians this week and, uh, and next as Palm Sunday and Easter are upon us. Look this morning at John 12, verses 27 to 30. <clears throat> it's amazing how quickly things that look so good can go so terribly wrong. We regularly see examples of that, though, in uh, sporting contests and world events, personal relationships. And the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem seems to be such an event. On Palm Sunday, the crowds acclaimed him um, as God's promised king. But by the end of the week, the crowds were crying, crucify him, crucify him. So for the sake of those who never expected this turn of events, Matthew and Mark and Luke and their gospel accounts, uh, walk us after the, the account of the triumphal entry, walk us through things that happened, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and people's reaction as the tide turned against him in this week. But John's gospel is different. After his account of the triumphal entry, John immediately begins to record what Jesus is thinking Not his teaching, not his actions. Here the Spirit pulls back the curtain just a little bit for us. And we learn that Jesus foresaw the coming trouble and was dealing with it in the agony of his own soul. Jesus was engaged in a kind of spiritual warfare. Not some glorious fantasy realm like like we may think of for spiritual warfare, but in an agonizing hand-to-hand combat of the soul. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We might need to hear that ourselves. Let me read it. Short passage, verse 27 to 30. Jesus is speaking. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very hour I came into, came to this, for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him, and Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine, and there will end. Let me suggest two things that we ought to learn from this text. The first is this. Jesus understands your trouble. Jesus understands your trouble. When you try to help hurting people, they sometimes will say, well, you just don't know what it's like. You've never had to face this. And very often I have to say, you're right. I don't know. I haven't been where you are. And for some reason, that's reason enough to discount whatever you have to say to them, whatever comfort you would offer. But in our text, we learn that Jesus has been there. He understands your trouble. Think for a moment what causes the greatest troubles that we face. It's when we face pain that seems unbearable, probably not physical pain, but heartache and grief and loss and disappointment which will not go away. It's when our hearts long for something so intensely that we can taste it, but it's not to be had, for God says no. Or it's when we do not want something that's been handed to us, when we would give anything to change it, but change is not possible. In short, we face the worst trouble when the inevitable road ahead, the path that God is taking us, is exactly the opposite of every desire of our hearts. When our souls cry out, please, no! But the path does not change. It's in those times that our well-meaning friends become repulsive to us as they say, it's okay, it will all work out. And we say, no, it's not okay, and it's not working out. You just do not understand. But here in John 12, we come to see that Jesus does understand for he has been right there himself. That truth is suggested to us in the simple statement of verse 27. Jesus said, now my heart is troubled. That statement might seem incidental at first, but when we see it in the context of this chapter, it's clear that the trouble Jesus sees coming is his impending death on the cross, which now looms large before him. John does not record Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the trouble mentioned here is the same trouble that he faced in the Garden. In his study entitled On the Emotional Life of Jesus, B.B. Warfield put together the various statements that the gospel writers used and, and, and to describe Jesus' uh, 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 trouble as he anticipates his death. Let me just share with you what he says. Luke uses the word agonia which means consternation or appalled reluctance. Matthew's expression, troubled, suggests a loathing aversion, perhaps not unmixed with despondency. Jesus' own statement that he was overwhelmed with sorrow expresses a sorrow, or perhaps we would better say a mental pain, a distress, which hems him in on every side and from which there is no escape. Mark uses another word, deeply distressed or horror-stricken. It's a term which more narrowly defines the distress as consternation, if not dread or dismay. So John Stott summarizes all this. He says, put together these expressive words, indicate that Jesus was feeling an acute emotional pain causing profuse sweat as he looked with apprehension and almost terror at this future ordeal. In other words, Jesus' statement in verse 27 was a colossal understatement of what was really going on inside of him. As he said simply, now my heart is troubled. So what troubled Jesus so much? As he looked forward to the cross. Throughout the ages, great men and women have faced death with courage and calm was Jesus weaker than they? Indeed, Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples, Fear not. Was he now afraid? He had instructed them to rejoice and be glad when they were insulted or persecuted. Did Jesus not practice what he preached? Now something else is going on here. There must be something more that Jesus sees on the horizon, more than just the trauma of physical suffering. More than just the emotional pain of being betrayed and losing all of his friends. So what was it? What trouble does he see coming? Well, he gives us some indication when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? It's the staggering wine of God's wrath. The uh, prophet spoke of this. The Psalms speak of it. The judgment that God gives his enemies to drink. What Jesus sees coming is the pain of being identified with our sin. That will mean defilement for him. Defilement of his perfect holiness. We find it so repulsive when an innocent young girl is brutally violated by a rapist. But the violation of her purity is small in comparison to the Holy Son of God being defiled by our sin. Further's death, as our sin bearer, will mean separation from the Father. Our hearts go out to children who, by some tragedy, are separated from their parents. But that pain of separation and loss does not begin to approach the gulf that came between God the Father and God the Son as he hung on the cross as our sin substitute and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Worship at the cross means Jesus enduring the dreadful holy wrath of God at the cross. The righteous judge meets out just punishment for our sin, not on Jesus, for he's because of His sin, but on Jesus who bore our sin. You see, it's not the physical death of Jesus that He sees coming that, that causes Him grief. It's the spiritual death. It's His atonement for our sins. How could he look at such a terrible prospect and not say, my heart is troubled? This morning, I don't know where your heart hurts. I don't know what agony of soul you are suffering. I don't know what hopelessly impossible options you're facing. You can say to me, you don't understand, and I'll, I'll give you that, you're right. But today I guarantee you that whatever trouble you're facing is nothing compared to what Jesus faced. Jesus understands your trouble. He has been there and beyond. In Hebrews 4, we are reminded that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin, so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Receiving mercy, finding grace to help in time of need. So what did Jesus do? What strategy does he commend to us in these impossible times? Well, that's our second point. Jesus gained victory by surrendering to defeat. Jesus gained victory by surrendering to defeat. In the recent NCAA tournament, many of the top college teams who expected to celebrate the thrill of victory very quickly do defeat in the very first rounds. But then again, those are the two possibilities, aren't they? You can win or you can lose. When you win, you're excited, and it's wonderful. When you lose, it's agonizing and painful and humiliating. That's what competition's all about. That's why it's so inviting to us. You have to either win or lose. But here we have one of the most paradoxical and but profound truths of the Christian faith. The principle that victory will be gained by defeat. This truth runs throughout the Gospel accounts. It's been called the life through death principle, which is the law of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself stated it clearly when he, when he said, He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, here it is again. Same principle in different words. Jesus gained victory by surrendering to defeat. And that's his strategy for us as well. In verse 27, Jesus is troubled by the agonizing prospect of the cross. So how will he respond? As he faces this terrible dilemma, what what, what stance should he take? Well, look at verse 27 again. Now my heart is troubled, he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Here Jesus sees two possible paths before him. He could pray, Father, save me from this. And don't you think the Father would hear his Son if he cried out to save him? Doesn't the Son of God have the right to walk away from this? It's not his sin after all. Remember what Jesus said when Peter pulled out his sword to defend him? Jesus said, do you think I cannot call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? And as Jesus struggles with the trouble, the anguish, the agony of his soul, he wonders aloud, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? I shudder to think what my response would have been if people were, or accosting me, and opposing me, and threatening me. And I were in that situation, I would probably have said to my enemies, who, who do you think you're dealing with? You want to see a display of power? I'll show you a display of power. Father, send in the angels. Let's decimate this mess. Let's clean house here. Oh, but if Jesus had done that, how would the Father's plan to save sinners ever be accomplished? We would all be destroyed. Every person on the face of the earth would be destroyed, for we're all sinners. But Jesus had a second option. He could just continue the plan worked out with the Father from eternity past. The plan for the Holy Son of God to become man in order to take man's sin. But for him to continue that plan, Jesus must keep walking toward the cross. He must undergo the baptism of judgment. He must drink this cup of God's wrath. He must endure the separation from his Father. He must submit to the violation of his holiness. In other words, he can only know the victory of God's saving plan by surrendering himself to the agonizing defeat of the cross. So which will Jesus do? Will he protect himself? Relieve his troubled heart and the agonizing pressure? Stop the prospect of unfathomable anguish? Though to do so, he must abandon God's plan to save us? Or will he abandon himself? Die to every human desire for comfort. Die to every normal urge to protect himself. Die even to his rightful claims of glory and honor. Will he willingly embrace the defeat at the hands of sinners in order to save those very same scoundrels? Well, there's no question about his response. You see in the end of verse 27, 28, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus understood his situation in light of the plan of God. He understood that the agonizing prospects he faced had not fallen to him by chance, but that from before the world began... He had moved toward this hour. His incarnation and birth was for this purpose. His years of ministry had been focused on this end. He understood. So now, when the chips were down, he stood firm, entrusting himself to his Father and facing the cross, not because it was convenient or easy or comfortable, but because it was his Father's will and his Father's glory. So his answer here is the same thing he prayed in Gethsemane. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Doesn't this make your heart melt in gratitude? Jesus didn't have to do this. He didn't have to do this. He chose to surrender himself to the unspeakable agony of defeat in order to win the victory that God planned for you and me. As Charles Wesley put it in song, he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Jesus gained God's victory and ours through the utter defeat of his own self-interests. And so when Jesus prayed this decisive prayer, it was for this reason I came into the world, Father, glorify thy name. When Jesus abandoned all other options in favor of God's will, the heavens thundered and the Father spoke, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it. How much has been written about this voice from heaven? Let me explain what I understand to be its significance. When the Father heard Jesus' prayer of absolute submission to his will, the Father said, yes! This is the glorious, what glorious righteousness looks like. This is the obedience that will set my, my people free. This is my son. Look at him. He sets aside everything to do the Father's will. I am so pleased with him. You see, Jesus may encounter all kinds of trouble, agony of soul, confused disciples, hostile leaders, death. But it didn't matter if the Father was pleased, if the Father's name was glorified, if the Father's will was done. And so Jesus won God's victory by surrendering to self-defeat. Before we quit, I want you to understand that God has called you and me to live out this same Principle. Life comes through dying. The way to glory is the way to the cross. The way of righteousness is the admission of wickedness. The way of God's power is the admission of our weakness. The thrill of God's victory is gained by the agonizing defeat of ourself. You see, your trouble and mind are, are basically the same as Jesus' agony of soul. There's no comparison in the intensity of the struggle, but the principle's the same. When trouble comes, it's because of what God has set before us. Whether by his declared will or by his providential guidance, God has brought us to a place that we do not want to be. And it hurts like crazy. And it looks like it's only going to get worse. And things are not working out well. It's getting tougher than we ever dreamed and we want relief, we want comfort, we want success so bad we could stand it no more. Still God seemed to be saying, no, no. And out of trouble we face the same two options Jesus faced. We can say, God, I've had enough, I want out, I quit, I'm done. There's probably some way by which we could get relief for ourselves. It may not be pretty, it may be immoral, it may devastate a lot of people, but people have found all kinds of ways out, and God has let them do that. Oh, but what of God's plan for your life? That intricate, though unseen scheme by which He planned to use that trouble for His own glory and for the sake of His kingdom. Once you said you'd do whatever He wanted, you promised Him your allegiance, right? So now is He just going to have to understand that He asked too much? Is that what you expect? Or there's the other option. To say with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. To say it was for this very reason God brought me to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Of course, in order to say that, the deepest desires of your heart may have to die forever. That will mean continuing down this road to the cross, This road of dying to self until your life is spent, giving away your rights again and again, laying aside your preferences again and again, letting others take first place again and again, suffering without retaliation again and again. In short, it will mean dying with Christ Jesus every day, often unbeknown to anyone else. It may mean that in your whole life you will never attain the great things that people expected of you, the things you expected of yourself. You will only strive to please the Father. Period. So how will you respond in your day of trouble? You see, no matter what the particular struggle, the battle is really the same. Folks, this is real spiritual warfare, not what people talk about. The battle is not against some enemy out there. The battle is against self. Against all the things I want and I deserve and I have planned. The battle is not about me being strong enough to force others into submission. No, the battle is my willingness to die and have all my self-interest defeated in order that God might be glorified. Other enemies I might easily defeat, but self is one tenacious fighter. This is a bloody battle to the death. It's hand-to-hand combat of the soul. So this morning in the thick of the battle, I call you to say with Jesus, for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name in me, not my will, but yours. Be done. Make no mistake, Jesus understands your trouble. But Jesus gained victory by surrendering to defeat, by denying himself to do the Father's will. And you will only know victory in your struggle in the same way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for me to preach these things because your word says them so clearly. But I know in my own experience and I know from what I hear of the experience of others, that there's nothing easy about this. We'd speak lightly of taking up the cross, and yet everything about really taking up the cross is repugnant to us. We speak lightly of new life in Christ, and yet... We don't like to think about the fact that that means I have to die again and again and again and again. Father, I don't know how this applies to everyone else. I have a little bit of an idea of how it applies to me. I pray that your spirit would take this truth, that he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. This truth that victory comes by... Abandon ourselves to defeat. Take this truth and drive it home and apply it to our circumstances, we pray. In order that you might be glorified. In order that you might be pleased. In order that Jesus might be honored. In his name we pray, amen. If you find your bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith there. is a passage out of Hebrews 4 that we read earlier in the sermon. Let's just read it together. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus...